Well, I've been preaching through the first couple chapters of Acts the last few weeks, and tonight we come to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. So tonight I'm going to be preaching a sermon about a sermon, which I don't think I've done before, so hold on to your hats. Um, I read part of Peter's sermon last week, but tonight we'll read and focus on the whole thing. So we'll read Acts 2, verse 14 to verse 36. This is God's holy, infallible, and gracious word to us this evening. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, He spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This is God's word for us this evening. Now, besides the soccer World Cup, the big news in sports this week has been LeBron James' free agency. James is a basketball player. His nickname is The King, and if you aren't a basketball person, you should know that he pretty much rules the basketball world these days. Now, since we're in Chicago, I'm going to insist that some other guy with the initials MJ, Jordan, is still the greatest basketball player of the last couple decades, but James is working himself into that conversation. 
And he was a free agent this summer, which means he could have theoretically signed with any team he wanted to. And so the last couple weeks were crazy out there. Teams had been planning for this week for years. They were dumping players. They were bringing in new players. They were trying to free up money to sign the king. Everybody wanted to lure King James to their team. And the rumors were flying like snow in a blizzard. James is going to this city. James is going to that city. James had been seen talking to this player. James texted with that owner. And over time, a couple of favorites emerged. Could James re-sign with his current team, the Miami Heat? Or would he go back to his roots, to his first professional team, and re-sign with the Cleveland Cavaliers? And as those two teams became frontrunners, the people around Cleveland and Ohio in general just went crazy. Apparently, they don't have enough to do in Ohio, but that's a different story. Anyway, James has a summer home in Ohio, and there were literally dozens of cars just parked in front of his house there day after day after day as people just sat and waited to hear what the king's decision would be. People in Ohio even started setting up little shrines, hanging up James' old jerseys and such in the hopes of luring him to come back. And for quite a while, nobody knew where he was going to go, and the basketball world held its breath and waited for the king. Now, finally, just a couple days ago, James decided that he would go back to Cleveland, go back to Ohio, back to his hometown, and Ohio rejoiced. And I think they're probably still rejoicing. Uh, The situation in Acts 2 was a little bit like the basketball world the past couple weeks. People were desperately hoping for the return of the true king of Israel. They were reading the Old Testament prophecies, and they were thinking someone had to be coming soon. So in his sermon, Peter starts out by building on that excitement. But Peter doesn't start out at the beginning by saying, Jesus is the new returning king of Israel. Instead, Peter takes the crowd back to the Old Testament. And he tells them that what's happening on that Pentecost day in the street right in front of them is what was predicted by the prophet Joel all those years ago. In the last days, begins Peter, And then he quotes that section of Joel that talks about the spirit of the Lord being poured out and people prophesying and having visions and dreams. And there will be wonders and signs, blood and fire and billows of smoke, and the sun will turn to darkness and the moon will turn to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Now, when we start talking like that, it doesn't sound terribly natural. Those verses from Joel are probably more confusing than anything else for us at this point. But Peter's original audience would have known exactly what he meant. Or at least they would have thought they knew exactly what he meant. In the ears of that crowd in Jerusalem on that day, Peter was saying that the last days had come. And he had evidence for it on the street right there next to him. The crowd would have thought of the last days as the time that God would finally restore Israel. In the last days, God would do mighty, mighty works for his people. And Israel would again be great among the nations. So Peter's first words would have gotten the crowd really, really excited as they stood there listening to the disciples speak in tongues. Look, right here in front of us, the Spirit's been poured out. The signs and wonders are beginning to happen. God is at work once again. Our day has come again. But then Peter drops a bombshell in the midst of their excitement. I was once touring a state capitol building, and when we came to the room where all the representatives were assembled, you could tell nothing very important was going on. 
Some of the representatives were playing on their phones. A few of them were having a meeting off in a corner. Some people were just kind of doodling on papers in front of them. And someone was yammering away up front, but you could tell that nobody really cared. But then a new speaker stood up, and he called everyone to pay attention, and then he started talking about a different topic. And all of a sudden, everybody started paying attention. People sat up. The meeting in the corner stopped. People put down their phones, and they started listening really carefully to this new speaker on this new topic. Now, I didn't catch that the shift was all that significant, but obviously for all the representatives there, something new, something significant had come up, and they suddenly started paying real attention to the person in front of them. Now, of course, that crowd at Pentecost would have been paying attention to the first part of Peter's speech, but you can imagine their interest turning to shock, to amazement, and even to anger when Peter gets to verse 22. Up to this point, Peter's been talking about the last days, and they're all tracking with him. But now Peter says, the last days predicted by the prophet Joel have been fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth? Men of Israel, says Peter in verses 22 to 24. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Joel had predicted that there would be wonders in the heavens below or above and signs on the earth below, and that's exactly what happened in the course of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. God did mighty, mighty works through Jesus. Jesus performed miracles. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. And when Jesus himself died, the sun went dark. The curtain in the temple split in two. The earth shook, and people knew that something cosmic had happened. And after that, Jesus showed himself to his followers for 40 days and taught them all kinds of things before he was caught up and ascended to heaven before their very eyes. Now, it seems like some parts of Joel's prophecy won't be fulfilled until Jesus comes for the second time, but Peter here is showing that Joel's Old Testament prophecy is pointing an arrow straight to Jesus of Nazareth. All of the hopes and the promises of the Old Testament point to the life and work of this Jesus of Nazareth who died and rose again. And so Peter is saying to the crowd, if you want to really experience what God has promised us, his people, you need to come and kneel before this man who you crucified just a few weeks ago. Now you can imagine how the crowd would be reacting to this. Some people probably would have just stood there in shock. How do you respond when you hear the news that the last days have come, that God's messenger has entered the world, and that you and your people have killed him? And that then God has raised him again, and now he's reigning in heaven. What do you do with that? You can also imagine some people reacting in anger. They thought they had finally gotten rid of that troublemaker Jesus, and now here he is again. And maybe a lot of the crowd was just standing there confused and wondering whether Peter was really getting this whole thing right or not. And this isn't a trivial thing. There's no middle ground here. These people's reaction to Peter's sermon will shape the rest of their lives. 
And we're in a similar position when we hear about Jesus today. It's all about what we do with this Jesus of Nazareth. God sent his own son into the world. God sent him to suffer and die a terrible death. God raised him from the dead, and God brought him up to heaven to reign at God's right hand. So now everything in our lives comes down to this point. Do we accept Jesus or not? And if we do accept that Jesus is the Lord, then everything that we do needs to be about him, and we need to center and orient everything around our died and risen Savior. And if we don't think that Peter's sermon is true, if we don't think that Jesus is really the Son of God, then we may as well just walk out of here right now, close our doors, and be done with this whole thing. Whatever else we have going on here as a church or as individuals, it all boils down to whether God really did these amazing signs and wonders through Jesus, the Son of God, and also a human being born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, crucified outside Jerusalem, and now reigning at God's right hand. Now, Peter's sermon hasn't quite gotten his audience to the point of decision yet. Peter launches from the book of Joel to say that Jesus really was sent by God. But then he proceeds to quote a couple psalms of David to show that Jesus is the new forever king. Now, it's hard for us to have this intuitive sense of how the Jews thought about David, but he was their prototypical king. He was their folk hero. He was the man. And so they kept hoping for him or for someone in his line to come back and reign. Now, when I was growing up, I remember occasionally bumping into people who really, really believed in a returning king. But these people weren't talking about King Jesus or King David. What they were actually talking about was the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. Some people really loved that king, and they weren't ready to admit that he was dead either. I remember going somewhere as a child and walking into someone's living room and they had this hutch that had one or two dozen Elvis commemorative plates up on it staring back at you. And it actually kind of freaked me out and I've never liked Elvis since. But these were people who kept holding on to their king. They wanted their king back. And of course, Elvis never did come back and he's not going to come back anytime soon. But there may still be some people out there hanging on to the hope that their king will come back. Well, the Jews, when Peter stood up, had been hanging on and hoping for a new king for centuries. So Peter is tapping into that hope, but he's also transforming it as he moves the focus from King David to King Jesus. Now, it's interesting how Peter introduces David here in Acts 2. King David was probably the most famous king of Israel. He was the first king who really seemed to be after God's heart, and he was a great Jewish hero. But as we read Acts chapter 2, Peter never actually says that David is the king. He calls him a patriarch. He calls him a prophet, but he doesn't call him the king. Peter talks about David, but he talks about David in order to talk about King Jesus the new and forever king. So first Peter quotes from Psalm 16, which talks about how the Lord is always at someone's right hand and about how God's chosen holy one will not be abandoned to the grave and will never see decay. But then Peter looks around and he says, but you know David who wrote this psalm? I can tell you confidently that he died and he was buried. I can even take you to his tomb. David is dead. And so this psalm can't really be about him, can it? 
Now, incidentally, at that time, there was actually a place in Jerusalem that people knew as David's tomb. So Peter could literally have led people somewhere and pointed and said, David is right in there. Now, this would have been an especially vivid picture for the people of that time because of their burial practices. Back then, they would take a body and they would put it in a tomb, sort of like a cave, and then they would let it decompose. And after it had gotten down to the bones, they'd go in, they'd sweep the bones together, put them in a container, and put them in the back of the cave. And the next time someone in the family died, they would put their body in the same place, let that body decompose, put the bones in a container, and keep stacking these bodies up at the back of the cave. So the people listening to Peter would have known what it was like for a body to be abandoned to the grave, and they would have known exactly what it looked like for a body to see decay. Peter's image here would be really, really a clear picture to them of the psalm, that the psalm's prophecy could not be found in King David himself because King David had died and his body had decayed away and he was sitting in a container in the back of a tomb somewhere. So Peter takes Psalm 16, which people had pointed back to David, and they sh- he shows how it's really about Christ. And notice how Peter doesn't use the name Jesus at first in verse 31. He first shifts the focus from David to the Christ, which was more of a royal title than a proper name for someone. And Peter says that when David prophesied that someone would be resurrected rather than abandoned to the grave, he wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the resurrection of the coming Christ. Then in verse 32, Peter brings the point home and says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Jesus has died, God has raised him back to life, and then Peter goes on to say that Jesus now reigns in the power of God. In Joel and in Acts 2 verse 17, it says that in the last days, God will pour his Holy Spirit out on his people, but then in verse 33, it says that Jesus himself is the one who pours his Holy, or God's Holy Spirit out on God's people. Peter is walking his audience along from the hope for a new king like David to Jesus as the true king, to now Jesus acting on God's behalf and acting with the whole power of God, pouring out God's Holy Spirit and reigning over the whole world. And verses 34 and 35 continue with that theme. There's a quote there from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, it's possible that Psalm 110 was composed for the occasion of David becoming king, and it's pretty certain that it was used for the enthronement of a lot of kings in the line of David. So this is a significant psalm for Peter to grab and to quote as he's talking about this new coming king. But in Acts 2, uh, Peter adds a whole deeper meaning to Psalm 110. This isn't about one more king who's going to reign and die and decay away. This is about the beginning of the ultimate king, of the last king that God's people will ever need, about the king who has all power and authority. Following the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus of Nazareth, he is now reigning as the forever king of the world. And then our passage for today wraps up. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
All of history centers around this Jesus of Nazareth. God's work from times long past pointed forward and drew in the story toward this Jesus. Jesus lived as God with us in his life, his death, his resurrection, and now his exaltation. Now, Jesus rules over the whole world, Peter tells us. Today, the Holy Spirit is continuing Jesus' work in the world, and someday Jesus will come and make all things new and make his kingdom all in all. Now, after Peter finished this sermon, Acts 2.37 tells us that the people were cut to the heart, and they asked the apostles, what shall we do? And this is still the question for us today. What shall we do with this Jesus of Nazareth? This is the most important question any of us can ever ask, and the answer to that question will determine the shape and the trajectory of our lives from today till forever. So, what will each of us do with this Jesus? What will you do with this, with this Jesus? Will you turn away or will we follow? And if we believe in Jesus, we have the promise that God will forgive our sins and give us the gift of his everlasting presence in our life in the power of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you if you believe in Jesus. So what are you going to do with Jesus?